0: Welcome to the episode of uh, Searching for the Question Live. My name is uh, David Orban, and uh, we are streaming live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, uh, where you are welcome to follow, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do at uh, each of those uh, uh, platforms. Uh, There is also uh, a page. Uh, where you can get more information about searching for the question live on my website uh, and uh, where you will be able shortly to suggest who would you like as a guest and then vote on those suggestions so that the most uh, uh, requested people bubble up and then I can go and ask them to join us. Uh, Based on uh, a strong uh, request by uh, those who watch uh, this show, as well as follow my other content that I put out, such as the context, my weekly segment. Uh, We created a a conversational community where you are welcome to participate, where you can uh, add uh, your observations, ask questions, discuss, not only with me, but also with uh, other people in the searching for the question community. There is a playlist uh, of uh, past episodes, uh, because obviously uh, it is wonderful to be able to watch these uh, uh, videos as they happen. And this gives you the opportunity to ask questions to me or to our guests. But if you miss something, there is no problem. You can watch uh, the recording afterwards. And uh, uh, the URL that you are seeing on the screen brings you conveniently to that. Uh, playlist. You can also sign up to my newsletter. Um, I send out one uh, every week. And finally, uh, I uh, invite you uh, to uh, support searching for the question on Patreon, uh, where uh, you can help my team and me uh, to produce something that is hopefully ever improving. And I believe that uh, today's guest uh, is uh, going to bring uh, a a huge uh, improvement uh, uh, as it is, uh, because uh, Howard, uh, who is a friend, and welcome, Howard, uh, uh, to uh, Searching for the Question Live, uh, is a a wonderful author uh, publishing his seventh uh, book. And we will talk about it extensively today, for sure but also um, an incredible uh, PR uh, agent uh, who followed and supported the careers of uh, people like Madonna and Prince and Michael Jackson and and, and many others, uh, bringing uh, with his talent, uh, uh, helping theirs, uh, joy uh, to uh, millions and billions of people uh, all over the world. So, uh, Howard, it is a pleasure to, to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, David, it's
1: wonderful to see you again.
0: Uh, Howard, you are uh, physically located in uh, wonderful Brooklyn, uh, New York, and I am located in Bergamo, Italy. Uh, it looks like we are passing the baton. This was the epicenter of the pandemic, and now New York is the epicenter of the pandemic. How is it over there? It's remarkably calm. It's pretty damned astonishing. It's the beginning
1: of spring. We have a 580-acre park. It is the anywhere in the world. It's Frederick Olmsted is the park designer, um, and this was his masterpiece. It's Prospect Park. So every day I go, uh, I walk six miles in that park, and I'm not the only one. The park is is maintaining the sanity of hundreds and hundreds of my neighbors. So the park is crowded with people. We're trying to stay six feet apart from each other, but it's like a holiday. Um, There's no hint of the illness, and so far, none of the people I know have come down with the illness, so it's like your situation in Bergamo, because you walk out on the street and you're in one of the most beautiful places in the world, um, and it's very hard to believe that one of the great catastrophes um, is happening around you.
0: That's right. Uh, it is uh, uh, psychologically really um, a, a contrast uh, that uh, wears uh, uh, you down. It is not easy to realize uh, that uh, among uh, uh, all this nature, uh, really uh, the, the world is uh, falling apart uh, economically uh, and also uh, in, in terms of uh, the lives of people who are either ill or, or actually died. Um, For me, it was uh, really uh, a progression of of, uh, seeing it uh, from afar in China, then seeing it closer because my daughter lives in uh, Seoul, South Korea, and then of of it uh, arriving in Italy and asking myself how close it is going to come. And and now literally almost every day I hear the news of uh, one person or another having died in my street. So, uh, uh, it is It is. It is really uh, a science fiction um, movie that uh, we are living in, which is simultaneously terrifying and boring because <laughs> 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 nothing really is happening, you know? Right, Not even the, mundan- oh, the, mon-
1: the mundanity you know? of evil. And once upon a time, I got a call early in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, um, from a friend who was a nudge, So it's the kind of person you try to get off the phone as rapidly as possible. And he said uh, when I tried to hustle him off the phone, schmuck, listen up. Buildings burning. Look out your window. So I looked out my window and there were the Twin Towers burning. And the relevance is that when I went up on the roof to watch this, the sky was the most perfect blue I had ever seen in my life. There were just a tiny number of white clouds, just enough to punctuate the blue and make you realize that this was one of the most sunny, gorgeous days you've ever seen in your life. So the sky around you was summoning you to a celebration at the same time that one of the great sacrifices, um, one of the great historical moments uh, and monstrosities of all time was taking place. So the mundanity of evil is a phrase that doesn't just apply to people doing bad things, it applies to nature doing bad things. Because remember, viruses... We are up, we've been in a, a, a battle for um, a billion years, ever since multicellular creatures have existed against the microbial world. And the microbial world is brilliant at research and development, absolutely brilliant, and at innovation. And um, the, the question has been for the last 150 to 350 years since we've had science, um, which is going to win? Who's going to research and development fastest? Who's going to innovate fastest? The microbes or the humans?
0: And, and, and that is what uh, Mike uh, Bryant, one of our uh, 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 one of the people watching the show is asking. Shouldn't the question be what are the potentialities contained within all the information uh, within my DNA? How do I manage that? Uh, absolutely well, that's interesting that's
1: because in reality the cosmos is a giant search engine of possibility space. The cosmos for uh, 13.7 billion years has been reaching out tendrils, branches, antennae to feel out the realm of the impossible and to yank some of those impossible things into the realm of reality. And we are just her latest extensors. We are just her latest sensors, her latest probes into the realm of the impossible. Um, Yanking impossible things into existence. So many people regard nature as static. Um, You know, nature is a perpetually unchanging petting zoo, a garden of Eden. No, nature has never been a petting zoo. Nature is violent and awful and cruel. I mean, who invented death? Nature. Who invented pain? Nature. Um, And those are the two greatest injustices um, in this cosmos, and we have been slowly but surely, hard as this is to believe, we have been slowly but surely overcoming injustice, death, and pain. For example, if you'd been born in 1850, your odds of um, your your life expectancy would have been 38 years. If you'd been born in 2000, it would have been 78 years. That's an extra 40 years. That's more than doubling the human lifespan. So, and the-, and the big
0: difference between uh, nature and us is that uh, nature is amoral, not even immoral. If, if somebody, uh, a human being, uh, killed uh, 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 tens or hundreds of billions of individuals and extinguished, exterminated millions of species, we would very rightly call that in- individual immoral. Uh, but but nature has no sense of its own uh, uh, actions. Uh, it is blind in its direction. Evolution uh, applies uh, its uh, force uh, uh, without judgment. Uh, and and isn't that an important difference? As uh, uh, it's a API huge open source difference. approach in finding solutions.
1: The the numbers of dead bodies that piled up. Um, are you still there? we're we're losing yeah. your picture yeah. no 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 uh there is I'm trying internet- to get you back. the uh, number of uh, dead bodies that have actually piled up since the billions of trillions so nature oops, we're cutting
0: out uh there's uh, a bit of, of of internet glitch but uh, don't worry just keep going uh, we we can hear you
1: Okay, terrific. So nature has killed off billions of trillions of creatures, of living beings, of living things since she gave birth to life. But that's not new for nature. Once upon a time, nature gave birth to these absolute wonders called stars. And within a million years of the first star's evolution, she began to kill stars off indiscriminately in novas and supernovas. But the insane thing, nature is You could say nature is intentional, Um, nature is directional, Um, nature is constantly stepping up a a staircase of complexity. And from every monstrous deed, from every war crime that nature uh, inflicts upon her children, um, she derives the next step up, horrible thing to say, but that's what nature does. So a star was the gravitational accumulation of atom after atom after atom after atom, and of, of, again, trillions or gazillions of atoms in a single star. And what did nature do to those atoms in her heart? She ripped them apart. And the screams of dying atomic nuclei are what we perceive as light. They're photons. And when nature killed off that first generation of stars, what did she accomplish aside from an appalling deed of destruction? She built 89 new forms of atoms that had never existed before, the elements of the periodic table. So nature uses mass murder and war crimes to generate her next step up. And we humans, especially in the 21st century, tend to be blind to the fact that nature is constantly stepping up a staircase of progress, that nature seems to be on an intentional quest for the next level of complexity, the next level of awe, astonishment, and wonder.
0: And and, uh, in that uh, scheme, of course, uh, we come with our self-awareness and with our dreams and our uh, arrogance and are trying to improve the processes where the um, speed and uh, the effectiveness and the directedness of uh, creating superior levels of complexity can accelerate further, or whose acceleration even increases in achieving what uh, nature created in 13 billion years. We are aiming no, absolutely. To do as much and more in less amount of time.
1: So when we invent the Internet and the iPhone and Facebook, um, these are things that, so far as we know, this cosmos has never seen before. And we are adding a new layer of complexity and possibility to the cosmos in the process of doing these things. In other words, we are doing nature's work. So when the viruses do research and development and come up with new innovations in order to attack us, they're doing Mother Nature's work. They are introducing new levels of complexity. When we, on the other hand, research and development are tails off to find a way to defeat the viruses, we too are doing nature's work because we are extending nature's tendrils into the realm of the impossible and yanking that, those impossible things into the realm of
0: reality. And uh, uh, talking about viruses and their potentiality, uh, as well as uh, DNA and our genetics uh, knowledge uh, improving, obviously, uh, the current pandemic is horrible for uh, the people uh, getting sick and dying, as well as uh, for the economy and those that are suffering as a consequence because they lost their jobs or their business went bankrupt. At the same time, We are in the 21st century where where we have to have the courage to recognize that biology is a tool uh, and our understanding of it must empower us to do even more, to do more controlling the negative, uh, uh, like uh, the pathogens, but also to do the positive, correcting genetic defects, uh, improving uh, our capacities uh, and... Uh, actually putting uh viruses bacteria and and other organisms at work just like we have been doing with macroscopic ones uh, when we um evolved uh, cows to give us an enormous amount of milk rather rather than their others uh, under the the natural condition or or chicken laying eggs and and, and so on so uh, do, would you agree that we, or, or just just as just is. as we
1: did. yes, just as we did when we began to employ bacteria um, in order to turn that milk into cheese,
0: or um, to make or, beer,
1: yes, exactly, or to make beer, and it's a win-win proposition. In other words, we basically say to bacteria, "I'm going to give you your ideal living conditions. I'm going to feed you so much of the food you love the most that you will gorge on it. All you have to do <laughs> is is Piss and chit for me. Um, because what is it that these microorganisms are kind enough to piss out? Beer and cheese. So the it's a win-win situation. The microorganisms win, we win, and ultimately we advance this entire cosmos one more tiny step up that great chain, that great ladder of being, um, toward the next step into the impossible.
0: So, uh, tell me about uh, your latest book, and, and, and maybe tell me about uh, what some of the other books as well. But let's start uh, definitely uh, with the with the latest. Uh, the 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 title is already uh, fascinating: Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me. So let's start with the title, and then tell us uh, more about uh, what you wrote about.
1: Okay, so you may be wondering what in the world a former rock and roll publicist is doing talking about um, the the big history of the cosmos, 13.7 billion years of the cosmos existence and where the universe is going next. Well, the fact is that I started in science at the age of 10. I started in microbiology and theoretical physics. I had built my first two credentials by the time I was 12. When I was 12, I built my first Boolean algebra machine, a symbolic logic machine. I co-designed a computer that won some science fair awards. I was taken for a meeting with the um, uh, the head of the graduate physics department at my local university, the University of Buffalo. And I'm sure that he he thought he was there to give me five minutes of his time because what head of a graduate physics department wants to talk to a 12-year-old? Give me a break. Um, And we were in his office for an hour because we were discussing the hottest topic in science of the time which was Big Bang versus steady-state theory of the universe and the interpretation of the Doppler shift. And I also was tutored in outside-the-box science by the head of research and development for the Moog Valve Corporation, which was making uh, cutting-edge valves for the first uh, rocket planes to break the sound barrier, Bell X1 and the Bell X2, and to make it to the edge of space. So then the question is, well, then how in the world did I get into working with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, um, ZZ Top, Joan Jett, and lots and lots more. Earth, Wind, and Fire, the list just goes on and on. And it started when I was 12 years old, and I suddenly realized I was an atheist. And I realized that just two months before the high holidays. I'm. I'm. So here I am, a Jewish atheist. And my parents did not take going to synagogue very seriously most of the time. But when it came to the holidays, they took it very seriously. So they somehow managed to get me into a suit. I don't know how. I hate suits. They got me into their car. They drove me all the way over to Richmond Avenue in Buffalo, which is where the synagogue was. And then I refused to get out of the car. Why? I'm an atheist. I'm not the least bit interested in going to one of these long and boring um, religious ceremonies. So as my parents were literally yanking at my ankles while I held on to the sturdy American made door frame of our blue Frazier automobile, um, something occurred to me. And that is, if there are no gods in the heaven, and there are no gods beneath the earth, are there gods in this scene? Yes, gods are in my parents, and their ferocious determination to get me to the synagogue. And if the gods are in my parents, then the gods are in me too. And I realized that, Okay, Galileo accomplished what he did because he took an instrument that was designed for horizontal viewing, to see the uh, soldiers of the Spanish coming over the horizon, um, and decided to turn it in an unexpected direction. He turned it up at the sky. Um, Anton van Leeuwenhoek, one of the co-inventors of the microscope, um, made his contribution by taking a, a lens, the same sort of thing, that he used. He was a draper, and he used it to check out the fineness of the weave in the fabrics he was importing, and instead of pointing it at fabrics, he pointed it at pond water and discovered animalcules, and my task, I suddenly realized, was to turn the lens inside of us. Now, I was not original of that. Sigmund Freud had done that for a long time, and I went out in quest of the gods inside of us. I went out in quest of the the ecstatic experience and how that experience is used by people like Adolf Hitler um, in order to change the course of history. And when I uh, graduated from college, magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa, and with fellowships at four different grad schools um, in what was what is now called neuroscience, but then was called physiological psychology, I realized something. I was about to step into an Auschwitz for the mind. I was about to become a grad student. And I was curious about these mass passions, these mass ecstasies that people like Adolf Hitler sculpt, or today that people like Donald Trump um, use to sculpt the, histori- the currents of history. Um, and was I ever going to get anywhere near those things by giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students in exchange for a psychology credit? Not on your life. So I jumped ship. I did my own voyage of the Beagle and I went into something I knew nothing about, popular culture. And a few years later, um, I founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry. And it was rock and roll is where the gods are or one of the places where the gods are in modern society. So I ended up by a series of accidents exactly where I needed to be able to study those mass passions, um, those mass ecstasies that are the forces of history.
0: Uh, That is is absolutely fascinating. And uh, I I want to show um, uh, to our viewers uh, the various uh, uh, places where they can find you, uh, howardbloom.net, your website, uh, uh, howardxbloom on Twitter, and howbloom on on YouTube, uh, where you also have uh, a, a gazillion subscribers. Uh, and uh, a uh, very lively uh, presence, uh, where you sign yourself Howard the, the Humongous, uh, and, right. and uh, you are perpetuating uh, wonderful and wonderfully provocative and controversial uh, points of view, uh, most of which I share, uh, and uh, and uh, draw uh, people uh, to to think, uh, because um, uh, I. I believe that uh, that one of your qualities is to uh, be able to um, create chains of uh, thoughts and express them uh, beautifully uh, that uh, make people uh, think better, uh, make people think deeper, uh, and in general make make people think. And if if we look at humans uh, as the self-aware machine, uh, uh certainly thinking uh, is one of our most important functions, and uh, thinking better, as a consequence, fulfills uh, that function uh, better. Now, when is uh, the book Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me uh, going to, to come out? It comes out April
1: 15th, uh, which is very strange, oh. David, because the world is in crisis right now, and there's no such thing as a bookstore. Um, There will be no such thing as a book tour by April 15th. And what I mean by that is the bookstores have all shut down until the COVID crisis is over. But let me say something about the COVID crisis. Um, We are very lucky that this is not a world war. In a world war, you don't just get locked in your house. um, The building in which you live disappears. All the landmarks that you've known disappear. Your city becomes a rubble. Um, people die not just by the hundreds of thousands, which is what is likely to happen with the COVID-19 epidemic, they die by the tens of millions. So as awful as this COVID crisis is, things could be a lot more awful than this. But as for the book coming out, I mean, look, when I was 10, what got me into science was a book that appeared in my lap in my family's great big living room one day. The house was utterly deserted. And the book said the first two rules of science are these. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gave the example of Galileo, and it told the story all wrong. It told it as as if Galileo had been willing to go to the stake in order to defend his truth. That's not true. Um, Galileo, in fact, um, was friends with the Pope, and he cut a deal with the Pope. And his deal was that he would swear that everything he'd ever written was false, in exchange for spending the last years of his life under house arrest. Now, fortunately, the book didn't tell it that way because I needed a hero, a hero who stood for courage, which is what that first law of science, the truth on any price, including the price of your life, is all about. And the second law of science, it told me, was um, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. Look at the things that you and everybody around you take for granted as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. And it gave as an example, Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who not only looked at pond water using his lens, uh, he actually looked at fresh sperm and wrote about it at length. He found animalcules in his fresh sperm too, the same sort of animalcules that he found in pond water or similar, um, and wrote to the Royal Society about it. Now think about the courage of this guy. Um, Where did he get fresh sperm to study? Um, Probably masturbation. So here he was confessing to this hideously private act um, to the royal society. I mean, that's courage beyond belief. Well, many years later, when I worked with Michael Jackson, I saw a living incarnation of those first two laws of science. Michael was the most remarkable human I ever met in my life. And I don't know if you can understand this, but he was a kind of human, a kind I never even imagined could exist. And his commitment to truth and his commitment to wonder, awe, curiosity, to the second law of science, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Try to find the infinite, and the tiniest of things. Those were qualities Michael carried within him and could not stop. He had aesthetic orgasms over tiny things that other people would overlook, that to him blazed forth as infinite wonders, infinite surprises, infinite awe. So in landing in rock and roll, I, a science thinker, um, turned out to be in exactly the right place to study the stuff that I wanted to study. And the stories that came out of it are fairly amazing. And those stories are the stories in Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Mia's Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll along with my attempt to figure out the mystery of music, why it does what it does to us, um, what it accomplishes. Among other things, music helps you when you reach the age of 13 or so, and you begin to eject yourself automatically from your family, something that goes way back biologically. I mean, uh, marmosets, uh, for example, when they hit puberty, begin to smell smell bad to their parents, and their parents began to begin to smell bad to them. And so they basically toss themselves out of their parental group and start to establish a life with peers. And we humans do that, too. But when we do that, because each generation has grown up with radically new technologies, each generation has a radically new emotional experience of the world. So as you're being ejected from your home and are ejecting yourself at the age of 13 and 14, you have a feeling that you have emotions that no one else in the world has ever had. You certainly haven't seen them expressed any place. And you think that you are insane and totally alone. And what does music do? A musical artist like Joan Jett, for example, comes along and expresses through music and through demeanor, through stance on stage, through the way she carries herself muscularly, expresses those very emotions that you thought made you insane. And suddenly you realize you are not alone, that you are part of a movement. So music is a galvanizer of social groups. It crystallizes the soul of entire groups. And what individual soul is and what group soul is are two of the mysteries that I pursue in this book of Astonishing Adventures. At least I hope they're Astonishing Adventures.
0: So um, the, the, the place where people will be able for sure to buy the book at least uh, in an electronic digital format starting April 15 is most likely uh, Amazon. Is that right?
1: Yes, absolutely. You can pre-order the book on Amazon right now and you can get the print copies because the uh, copies that come off of the print- printing presses um, before the COVID virus hit. Um, and you can pre-order copies right now. in kit, in, uh, I think it's in Kindle form now. I'm not quite sure. But and they're preparing an ebook, but it's it's available in print um, within two weeks. Wonderful. Order it now, and you'll get it on time.
0: And and uh, your uh, ideas uh, really span um, a lot of um, realms, a lot of uh, uh, spaces where specialists dwell. Um, what do you say to those who feel that uh and and and, and i am a uh, much more modestly uh, but i am also like you in the sense of of uh, uh daring to go in many different places what do you say to those who tell us both to you and to me that we shouldn't have opinions about so many things that we should not uh, uh, without having uh, been authorized or licensed or certified by somebody to say something about certain fields, and then another, and another, and another, we should just shut up. How, now, how we can you run into that? that? I agree
1: with you. Both of us run into that a lot. So in 2001, I created a field called omnology. And omnology is a field for the promiscuously curious, for the omnivorously curious. Um, the, the title refers to the aspiration to omniscience. Now, when I was 10 years old and got involved in science, I assumed that science ex- that science aspired to know and be able to explain everything, absolutely everything. In other words, science for me, when I was a child, was the aspiration to omniscience, something we think only God has got omniscience, the ability to know everything. And omnology says. That if you are interested in three different fields, let's say you're interested in art history, you're interested in neuroscience, and you're interested in film, and your dad sits you down in your sophomore year of college and says, Now, look, David, um, you got to make up your mind. Are you going to be an art historian? Or are you going to be a neuroscientist? Or are you going to be a filmmaker? And until you make up your mind, you're nothing. And Analogy is there, so you can fling a finger in the face of your dad, this kind of a finger. Wait, let's see if we can get that in the camera range. There we go. Um, and say, fuck you, dad. I'm sorry. I have three major interests in life. These are the things that drive my passions and my curiosity. I'm going to stick with all three of those passions. And if new curiosities incur, occur in my life, I'll add them in too. And if old curiosities die in slumber, I'll set them aside for a while. And when all of my friends are hitting the age of 40 and having midlife crises, and all the women are contemplating or planning very ornate divorces in order to find out who they really are for the first time, and all the men are buying little red sports cars and picking up blondes and cheating on their wives because they have no idea of why they're on this planet, I will just be coming back from the wilderness of my multiple curiosities with my first answers. While all of my contemporaries feel it is the end of their life, I will know that it's the beginning of mine. And that came out of an experience. When I was 16 years old, I worked at the world's largest cancer research center. And um, I, I was given a, uh, a scientist to, to watch over me to make sure I didn't uh, destroy too many multi million dollar pieces of equipment. And he took me to his office. And his office had a desk built into the wall and it was six feet long. And he showed me that he had three piles of books to his left, and three piles of books to his right. And they were all, these books were in German. And he said, see the pile on the right? Those are the books I've finished. See the piles on the left? Those are the books I haven't even started. I'm synthesizing one molecule. I've been working on it for two and a half years. And until I finish all of these books, I will not be able to synthesize this molecule. And I had a sudden vision. I saw Phil Fish, the scientist who'd been put over me, as a mole digging a deep, deep, deep hole, a hole so deep that he couldn't see any of the landscape around him that he was mired in the gloom. And I saw my role as an eagle flying over the landscape, seeing all of these mole holes, um, all of these gopher holes as pixels in a big picture. And my job was to be the person who saw the big picture by taking in all of the sciences that I, with my limited brain, and it is a very limited brain, can understand. So that's omnology. And without omnologists, without people who see the big picture, there are no questions for the specialists to pursue. Eventually a specialist or two generations of specialists run out of the questions that they've inherited from the professors who oversaw their graduate theses. And without new big pictures, there's no place left for science to go. So we, the omnologists, desperately need the specialists. They give us the pixels with which we assemble the big pictures. And they desperately need us, but they don't know it.
0: Um, I used uh, to define myself as an omnivore in in books. uh, uh, As I would uh, travel, uh, whether... Um, to Hungary um, for summer holidays on Lake Balaton or uh, to uh, the various Comdexes uh, in Las Vegas or uh, or Atlanta, uh, Georgia, Um, I would always come back with bags full of books. On airplanes, it would be always overweight. Uh, In uh, uh, the customs (laughs) controls of communist Hungary, uh, the, the... military would frown upon uh, this um, unbelievable um, quantity of books, sometimes sending me back, because at the Amazing. time it was illegal to bring books out of Hungary that were published uh, earlier than 1968. Um, Amazing. And, and, and uh, uh, a friend of mine uh, Richard Holcomb uh, in in North Carolina uh, would would fly to meet me for example uh, in Vegas and uh, we would organize um uh, not to go to the strippers together but to go uh, in a bookstore where each of us would buy a dozen books for the other and we would go Amazing. on aisles uh, telling stories with books to 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 each other and and for me one of the <laughs> One of the bigger moments of uh, discovering my mortality uh, has been when I realized that I'm not gonna read all the books, not alone, let alone all the books. I'm not gonna read all the books I have. Uh, You you see behind me uh, this uh, this bookshelf, which is not a green screen, uh, but but it is actually a, a physical bookshelf, and it is a fourth. Uh, of the part of the books that I can put on shelves, and there's probably three times as many in various uh, uh, relatives and my mother's uh, apartment and and wherever. So, so being uh, uh, an omnologist is a, is an endeavor which is Whoops. both. It's- Self-defeating,
1: or is disappearing?
0: Right? Well, let's hope it is only on your side, yes. and that our viewers can uh, hear right. hear me when they need to, and and then they can hear you when they need to hear you.
1: Right. So being being an
0: omnologist is so it's the norm <laughs> for you. We both are. We're
1: both omnologists. The deal is that once I got into science, look, no other child wanted to have anything to do with me in Buffalo, New York. And my parents had absolutely no time for me whatsoever, just weren't interested. So once I hit the age of 10, I started reading two books a day, one book under the desk at school and one book in the afternoon when I got home. So I did that for three or four years. It was science fiction books, and it was a lot of science books, a lot of basic science. Uh, not basic science, a lot of cutting-edge um, science. So we're both the same. I mean, we're children of books. Um, I feel, you know, the story of Mowgli in the Jungle Book, and Mowgli is abandoned and he's raised by wolves. Well, I feel that I was raised by books the way that Mowgli was raised by wolves. So every book that I write, like Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me: A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll, is an attempt to add to the library of books that will give you startling new
0: can
1: you still hear me? Go ahead. Up. Uh, yes. Good. 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 Okay. So over <laughs> to you, David. Up to you to ask a question.
0: <laughs> and so, um, I I had a mm, crisis uh, when I understood. Uh, Gödel's uh, theorem, and it took me ten years to digest it uh, from an existential point of view, and I found that rather than a limit, um, and and for our viewers, I will state it very uh, simply that uh, uh, Gödel, uh, Kurt Gödel, an Austrian mathematician uh, who worked together with Einstein. Uh, eh, or at least at the same time that Einstein was uh, uh, at Princeton, well, they were friends.
1: They they would take walks together.
0: This was at Princeton. yeah, but but they didn't work on the same things, did they? So so no, they didn't. So Gödel formulated a, a mathematical proof of the limits of symbolic systems. Uh, right. Every and any symbolic system that is powerful enough or more powerful than simple arithmetic will. Uh, 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 can be used, if we want to, to formulate statements that cannot be proven within the system itself. Right. And I understood, but it took me some time, that rather than limiting, this is exhilaratingly constructive because it creates the freedom to take either the yes or the no to the unprovable statement, making it an axiom of an extended system And this leads to an unending exploration of the mathematical universe, which as of right now, and and it is astonishing, we still don't know why, but has this amazing feature of being applicable to the world. So as we are extending our antenna in in exploring the universe, we are making choices about where we want to go. And for me, this has been uh, uh, life-changing. I, I discovered for myself, and, 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 and uh, I'm sure not the first, um, uh, the, the mathematical roots of the importance of uh, uh, choosing right and choosing things that create desirable futures. Um, have you had uh, um, um, similar epistemological um, uh, awakenings that 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 you remember you are still bringing in you? Well, I had a very strange
1: kind of epistemological awakening. When I was 12 years old, a, uh, a girl in my class turned her eyes in my direction and I was startled. That had never happened before. Never. And she made eye contact, which was even more startling because that had never happened before. And she said, I told my mom that you understand the theory of relativity. Well, My reputation, the kids didn't want to have anything to do with me, but they called me the sickly scientist. The only thing I had going for me was my science, and I couldn't confess to her that, in fact, I didn't understand the theory of relativity. So, as soon as school was out, I jumped on my bicycle and I pedaled down to the local library where the librarians knew me better than my mother did. And I said, Give me everything you've got on the theory of relativity. And the librarians fished out two books, one great big fat book written by Einstein and two collaborators, and the other, a little tiny skinny blue book written by Einstein himself. So I pedaled back home furiously and sat down with a big fat book because I had learned that if you put yourself through the most impossible thing um, from beginning to end, and it's something where you feel you don't understand a word, by the time you finish the book, you've understood something, even if only on a gut level. And now this book was all equations with about seven words of English on each page. And I've never been capable of understanding equations, never. So by eight o'clock that night, I was only 50 pages into the book. And I suddenly realized my mom's going to put me to bed at 10 o'clock tonight. And if I I haven't understood the theory of relativity by then, um, I am going to be humiliated at school tomorrow. So I set aside the great big giant book with the equations and picked up the little skinny book, By Einstein himself. And in the introduction, Albert Einstein said something that utterly changed my life. Um, It was as if he reached out through the pages, grabbed me by the lapel, put his nose up to my nose, and said, Schmuck, listen up. Be a genius. It is not enough to come up with a theory that only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, it is necessary to be able to come up with that theory and then to be able to write that theory so clearly, so deliciously, that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence could understand it. So Albert Einstein, through the pages of a book, told me, if I wanted to be an original scientific thinker, which frankly was the only thing that was left to me, kids had ruled me out of everything else, um, I was going to have to be a writer, and not just any writer, a really good writer. I was going to have to create dessert plays for the intellect, play dessert trays for the intellect, just writing so delicious that you couldn't stop reading it. So it wasn't the kind of existential thing that you're talking about, um, but it was part of what made me what I am today. I've been pursuing writing deliciously and clearly ever since, and also pursuing coming up with points of view so novel that they changed the way you see everything inside of you and everything outside of you for the rest of your life.
0: uh, if if, if, you, if you looked at the title of the show, uh, uh, you may have anticipated one of my favorite questions is actually, what is the question that I should be asking? Uh, is there a question that you would have expected me to ask and I didn't and you wish I had? And, and what is that question so I can ask it to you?
1: Well, here I went off and hunt, hunting for the ecstatic experience. And hunting for not just individual ecstatic experiences, but mass ecstatic experiences, like the torchlight parades that Adolf Hitler used to throw in Berlin. Because those torchlight parades, it was 10 o'clock at night. Um, the, uh, the people would gather on the street so thickly that if you were in the crowd, you could pull up your feet off the ground and you would stay perfectly rickle because of the press of the crowd around you. Everybody was waiting for these uh, soldiers to come walking down the Unter von Linden, a major boulevard, um, carrying torches, seven abreast. And the experience took you out of yourself, lifted you to something higher than yourself, made you feel a part of something much bigger than yourself. And we all need periodically to feel that we are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. It's what's called meaning. And in the case of these torchlight parades, um, Adolf Hitler was preaching, ein Volk, ein Reich, ein Führer, one tribe, one, one, um, uh, ein Volk, ein Reich, one tribe, one state, one leader, and you felt lifted and exalted into that one Volk, that one tribe, that one state, and that one ruler, so the question is, what in the world with the pursuit Of understanding these kinds of mass ecstasies have to do with my conversation with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo about the interpretation of the Doppler shift and um, how that relates to steady state versus Big Bang theory of the universe. How could these things possibly be related? David, they are related. When I was 12, my parents sent me for an interview with the headmaster of a private school in Buffalo. And I, look, I grew up with lab animals, with uh, lab rats and guinea pigs and guppies. And I had no idea of how humans are supposed to treat each other because other humans didn't want to have anything to do with me. So I sat down with this headmaster and I said, look, I'll only come to your school on the following conditions. First, you have to teach me Russian because Russia is going to be a very important uh, country in the rest of the 20th century. And then you have to reverse the normal order in which you give science courses. Now you give science courses with biology first, chemistry second, and physics third. I want you to reverse that for me. I want you to give me physics first, so you tell me the story of the birth of the very first elementary particles and the first atoms. I want you to give me chemistry second, so you tell me what sort of strange dances atoms did with each other once they congregated in teams. Those teams are called molecules. Then I want you to give me biology, because those are the strange dances that molecules make when they get together and create that infinitely complex thing, life. Then I want you to give me anthropology. So you teach me the origins of primitive human social organization. And then I want you to give me history, because that's what anthropology evolves into eventually. In other words, I laid out an evolutionary timeline of the entire cosmos going straight into the future for this poor innocent headmaster. Um, And so my whole life, I've been on the track of taking a giant timeline and putting everything on it, absolutely everything, from the birth of the universe, the birth of the very first stars, the birth of the very first galaxies, molecular genesis, the origin of the very first molecules, to Andrew Marvel's To His Coy Mistress and the works of William Shakespeare, Um, and what's going to happen in the next 100 years. That's been a mission I've been dedicated to since I was 12 years old. And when you lay out a timeline of that kind, you do see connections between these mass exhilarations, um, these these mass exuberances, uh, these mass ecstasies, um, and the whole chain of life. And ultimately comes down to what we started talking about in the beginning, that the cosmos is a search engine, Searching out her next possibilities, finding her way into the impossible, and yanking that impossibility into the present. And those ecstasies are, that's where we sense the soul of the group of which we are a part. And the question is, which accomplishes more, us as individuals or the group of which we are a part? Well, there's another community that we can look to for a little bit of guidance. It's the community of 80 trillion individual cells, each of which is capable of a certain amount of survival all on its own, but they collaborate in a grand project. And that grand project is called David Orban or Howard Bloom or whoever in the audience is watching this right now. And any one of those cells, if it had cognitive powers, would have the illusion that it lives in a small neighborhood and really is on its own. Um, Although it has quite a good deal of social... Uh, contact to say the least. But, um, it, it, but it would not be capable of comprehending. I mean, one of those red blood cells in which uh, something like 3 billion die in you every minute and are replaced by 3 billion new ones, not a single one of those blood cells knows what a David Orban is. And yet without them, you wouldn't exist. So if we are cells in a, in a larger superorganism, a larger organism, a society, how do we manage to ever perceive? Nature of the organism of which we are a part. How can we do what the blood cells can't do um, and see that larger whole? Well, we come to a sense of it in the ecstasies made, for example, at musical concerts when we feel a part of something bigger than ourselves. We come to an awareness of it when we are caught up so- in something bigger than ourselves in what's called religion. What we call God is really the personality of the group. And in religion and ecstasies, we make contact not only with the deepest, the most personal parts of ourselves. We make contact with that over self, of which we are a part, of which in which we are individual cells making up a personality as real as your personality and mine.
0: Howard, uh, this has been uh, absolutely a pleasure. uh uh, the hour we spent together flied and 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 uh, uh, we i didn't even realize uh definitely we must set up uh, another of these conversations because uh you have so many interesting ideas so many wonderful books you you wrote and i definitely want to share the pleasure of conversing with you uh uh, with uh, our audience uh, the book that is coming out uh, in two weeks is Einstein, Michael, Jackson, and Me, available on Amazon, uh, and hopefully as the bookstores uh, reopen uh, in bookstores as well. Uh, Howard yes, that would be nice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, a lot. Well, I look,
1: I look forward to seeing you again, David. I have missed you.
0: Thank you.